We have, t- counting tonight, we have four uh, sessions left. But the good news is there are only four chapters left in uh, Daniel, so we're covering one chapter each night, so we'll be right on uh, schedule. We'll finish uh, chapters 9 through 12 over the next four uh, Wednesdays together, and then that will take us through May the 8th. So we have tonight, and then the 24th, and then May 1st, and then May 8th, and we'll finish Daniel's uh, 12 chapters. And then on May the 15th is the final night for community kids for the year, and they always end with their Pinewood Derby and a hot dog dinner and all of that. So if you have kids or grandkids that are part of that, then you'll want to be here for it. But we won't be having class. It'll just be the Pinewood Derby and the finale for community kids. So tonight and three more weeks to finish off the book of Daniel. Tonight, Daniel chapter 9. And I remind you just briefly about uh, how the structure of the book of Daniel is put together. First chapter sets the scene for uh, what uh, is going on that gives rise to the events in the book of Daniel. And that is that uh, the uh, Israelites have been taken captive into Babylon. And Daniel and his friends are among those who were part of the captivity. And then chapters 2 through 7 give an overview of world history. Uh, God is saying that I'm in control of, of world history. And so he tells us that there are going to be four world kingdoms. He tells us that in two ways. One is the image of a statue, head of gold, and the chest and arms of silver, and a midsection of bronze, and then the legs of iron. And then also uh, gives a, an image, a vision of uh, four beasts, four different types of beasts that represent these four world empires as well. So chapters 2 through 7 give an overview of world history, but also God's control over that history. And uh, that is seen in God's uh, one predicting what's going to happen, therefore he must be in control of it in order for it to come out exactly as he says, but also in his uh, humbling of, of uh, some of those rulers. And so we see the humility, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, and of Belshazzar as part of chapters 2 through 7. And then we also see in that the frailty of man. Uh, And so all of those are themes that Daniel, uh, or God, more specifically through Daniel, is seeking to communicate to comfort his people. You're in captivity, but even though you're in captivity, I'm still in control. I know how things are going to play out in world history. And uh, I can humble uh, kings. I can raise them and humble them as I see fit. So all of that you see in chapters 2 through 7. And then chapters 8 through 12 are specifically focused on Israel. So chapters 2 through 7 are more this overview of world history, and God is saying, you fit, you, my people, my chosen people, Israel, you fit into that plan that I have for world history. But now beginning in chapter 8 that we saw last week and through the end of the book, it's specifically focused on God's dealings with his chosen people and the nation of of Israel. Because of that, because it's structured that way, chapter 1 with uh, an introduction to the setting of the book and the circumstances that gave rise to it, chapters 2 through 7 about world history, and then chapters 8 through 12 focused on Israel. Because of that, uh, the book of Daniel has this unique feature to it where it is written in a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic. You guys remember that from last last week? And so most of your, the vast majority of your Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and uh, 
portions of Daniel are written in Hebrew, but there's this fairly large portion that's written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the lingua franca. I just like to say that. I don't know what it means, but it was the, it's the, the language of commerce. Uh, it was uh, the language that most people would, would know and speak uh, in, the, in the Babylonian Empire. And so why would, in that section from chapters 2 through the end of chapter 7, why would God choose to have it written in Aramaic? Because this is a message for, in those chapters, all of those peoples, letting them know I'm in control of everything. I'm the true and living God that controls not only the nation Israel, I'm not just the God of Israel, I'm the God of the world. And I'm your God as, as well. And so uh, chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 3 are written in Hebrew. But then chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, are written in Aramaic. And then beginning in chapter 8, you pick up again with Hebrew because that's focused on God's dealings with, with Israel. So that's the way the structure of the book of Daniel is, is laid out. And now we come to chapter 9, one of these now five concluding chapters that's focused in on God's dealings with his people Israel in captivity. In verse 1, <clears throat> Daniel 9, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So let's remind ourselves uh, of the time setting and who we're talking about with Darius. Daniel often starts out these chapters giving a time marker this occurred when so-and-so was in his third year of his reign or whatever it is. And so here, um, in the first year of the reign of Darius, the, the son of Xerxes. So what is this first year of Darius? Well, it is uh, 538 B.C., 538 B.C. Remember that uh, the Babylonian Empire fell 539 B.C. It began in 605. It, it ended in 539, and it ended when uh, Cyrus uh, took over, uh, was able to conquer uh, Belshazzar and uh, take, take Babylon. And that happened in the year 539. Now, so what's taking place here is in the first year, 530, 538 of, of Darius. And why does it say Darius instead of Cyrus. Cyrus is the guy who was the Medo-Persian king, the one who defeated Babylon. But we saw back in chapter 6, I uh, don't need to go there now, but if you're taking notes and you just want to make a note to just go back and review what we said back in chapter 6, uh, it mentions at the beginning of chapter 6, actually at the end of chapter 5, verse 31 in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, mentions this Darius. And mentions that he was a governor who, chapter 6 and verse 1, appointed 120 uh, sub-governors, satraps is the, the word that's used, and we explained back then that those were people to whom he delegated various areas of responsibility. So what's the relationship between, on the one hand, Cyrus being the king, and yet you've got Darius as the guy who's mentioned here? Well, the relationship is this. Cyrus is indeed the king, 
But Darius has been delegated a portion of the kingdom to oversee. And as we said back in chapter 6, a portion of his kingdom is, is Babylon itself. And he has uh, organized it, going back to chapter 6, appointed 120 governors to oversee different uh, aspects and different areas of the uh, area assigned to him. So that's who Darius is. He is someone who has been appointed by Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, the one who conquered the Babylonian Empire, to a rule in, in Babylon. In fact, you see that uh, really hinted at in this first verse. It's the first year of Darius who was made ruler. Well, he was made ruler by Cyrus. So Cyrus appoints him to handle this portion of, portion of the, the empire. So in the first year, 538 B.C. of Darius, who's been appointed by Cyrus, who's been made king, to oversee uh, Babylon. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So that's a long single verse, and it's got a lot in it. So... In the first year of the reign of Darius, who had been made ruler in Babylon. So 538 B.C., he's the guy under Cyrus. And it's at that time frame and in that guy's reign that I, Daniel, come to understand from the Scriptures, specifically from the writing of Jeremiah, that the captivity that we're enduring is going to last 70 years. So what is, what is that about? Where, where does all of that come from? Well, if you were to uh, read the uh, book of Jeremiah, uh, you would read there in Jeremiah predictions. So Jeremiah is written before this captivity takes place. Ezekiel, another prophet, is written while it's taking place. But Jeremiah wrote and ministered and predicted and warned before this happened. And so it's, it's interesting to get a run-up, a lead-up to the captivity that now Daniel is experiencing and the, God's people are experiencing uh, by reading Jeremiah and seeing what he warned about and what he said. And one of the, I want to I show you a couple of places that are uh, very important for that. In Jeremiah 36, if you hold your finger in Daniel 9, you go to Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 36. And Jeremiah 36 and verse 21 says, The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. So here is a king of Judah where Jerusalem is located 
who is having read to him the words of Jeremiah the prophet written on a scroll. And as they are being read, he's cutting them up and throwing them into the, into the fire. So this gives you an idea in the run-up to the captivity why the captivity happened. You had the people engaged in idolatry, as we will see in Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel is got this long prayer that is the bulk of Daniel 9, where Daniel confesses the sins of his own and of the people, including their idolatry. But also the, the blasphemy of the leaders. And this is blasphemous in the extreme, isn't it? This is God's word, and this guy in his arrogance is cutting it and throwing it into the fire as it's read. Now, if you look down at the end of chapter 36, if you were to read, if we were to take time to read the intervening verses, you'll find that Jeremiah writes the scroll again. And at the end, down in verse 32, it says, Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So, you know, here you've got this ungodly king, to put it mildly, who is, has no regard for the word of God, as evidenced by his cutting it and burning it, Jeremiah, though, writes some more. So there are scrolls of Jeremiah, obviously, around and extant. Um, but this king is uh, intent on trying to stamp that out. Now, that'll be, that, that is important because in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, I've got a copy of the scroll. So here's a king burning the scrolls. Here's Jeremiah dictating and a secretary writing the stuff down to have some scrolls. And Daniel's got a copy. Now that was no small feat. I mean, think about it. No Xerox. You know, we didn't like our Xerox. We got a sharp now, but no sharp. So we got a new lease on our copy, but no copiers, right? You guys remember that commercial? It was a Xerox commercial. I mean, like 30 years ago. It was one of the first really famous Super Bowl commercials where uh, Brother Dominic was in a monastery and he's told and he's told you got to have these by Friday <laughs> he's got the stack of stuff and he's got a copy by hand and then all of a sudden coming out of the sky is this machine and he says it's a miracle and he's able to copy them that way but they don't have anything like that they have to do it all by hand Daniel is how old's Daniel um, when Nebuchadnezzar begins his siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C., he's a teenager. And Jeremiah is prophesying just prior to that. And so here's this teenage kid who gets a hold of the scroll, has the scroll, takes the scroll with him, apparently, keeps it and reads it and and then acts upon it, as we'll see in in Daniel chapter 9. So Jeremiah's prophesying, he's predicting this ungodly king, is showing his ungodliness by his reaction to the Word of God. And uh, in, in addition to that, I want you to, uh, I want you to notice what uh, it is specifically that Jeremiah said. Jeremiah chapter 25. And this is part of what the 
the reason that the king didn't like Jeremiah's scroll because of things like Jeremiah 25. Verse 11. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. So, so God, through Jeremiah, God is prophesying, because of your sins, my people, you will be punished, and you will be punished through the, the means of the Babylonians taking you captive, and that captivity is going to last for 70 years. That's prophesied through Jeremiah. But then after that's over, I'm going to, I'm going to punish the Babylonians. Now, let's step back for a second. Here's God with his plan to punish his people using the Babylonians. Then he's going to punish the Babylonians for what they did to his people. Now, now, what about that? Well, you remember me saying several weeks ago, everybody works for God, even people who don't want to work for God. And so that includes the Babylonians. And are the Babylonians guilty? Yeah, absolutely. They're carrying out God's plan, but their motivations are ungodly. And God is using their ungodly motivations to fulfill his ultimate, his ultimate plan. Can you think of parallels to that in biblical history? Well, the most obvious is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? This is in the eternal plan of God that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would come. God the Son would come as man and he would be crucified. This is in the plan of God. This is God's plan. But he punishes the people who did it. And Herod and Pilate and the religious leaders and the Romans, and right? And so you find that throughout biblical history. God's in control and God uses the sinfulness and he uses the sinful motivations of people to carry out his plan, and he holds those people responsible for their, for their sinfulness. But Jeremiah has made it clear, before it happens, the Babylonians are going to be the instrument, and the time frame is going to be this, uh, this 70 years. So God uses Babylon to effect that, and then Babylon, though, is going to be taken over. Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're a king of Babylon or if you are a king of Judah, like was Jehoiakim. You don't want to hear any of this. You don't want to hear if you're Jehoiakim, we're going to be carted off and we're going to be taken captive. And if you're Nebuchadnezzar, remember when Nebuchadnezzar was told there's going to be a kingdom that comes after you, he didn't want to hear that either, right? Now who's going to do that? Who's going to be the instrument that God's going to use to take Babylon and to humble Babylon? Well, that's going to be none other than Cyrus, king of Persia. And you find that in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. So take a look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Isaiah 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, 
who says of Jerusalem, It shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah. They shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Continuing in chapter 45, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, (laughs) to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you, Cyrus, by name. For the sake of Jacob, by the way, who's, when it says that, who's Jacob, my servant, Israel, right? My servant. Of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. It goes on. Now, who's it talking about here? Cyrus. So, Jeremiah prophesies, predicts ahead of time, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, you are going to be taken captive, and that captivity is going to last for 70 years. And that's going to happen through the hand of the Babylonians. And I will punish the Babylonians for what they did. And then in Isaiah, he by name predicts who's going to be his chosen vessel to judge the Babylonians. None other than Cyrus, the king of of Persia. And he calls him my anointed and my shepherd, even though you don't acknowledge me. So what is all that about? Well, it's simply again... God saying, everybody works for me. And I have chosen to use Cyrus to carry out my plan. Now, can you guys think of rulers over and over and over again, then, where God has done that? I mean, what about Pharaoh? Right? King of Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh hardens his heart. You know, the Bible says, if you read that account, read it carefully. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It also says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says both of those. And so God is using this ungodly Egyptian king to accomplish his his purpose. He did that in biblical times. He continues uh, to do it. So now back to Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel says in verse 2, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years, That's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. That's precisely where Jeremiah predicted that that very thing. And then back in Isaiah, Isaiah 44 and 45, God says Cyrus is going to judge the Babylonians, and Cyrus is the one who's going to decree that, that, that my temple is going to be rebuilt in, in Jerusalem. And sure enough, Sorry, I had you turn back to Daniel 9, but if you'll just hold your finger there for one more. Ezra, Ezra, chapter 1. 
Ezra chapter 1. So Second Chronicles, Ezra, then Nehemiah. So as you're thumbing through, if you see any of those, you're getting warm. But notice this, verse chapter 1 and verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by, look who, Jeremiah. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. And then if you go and look at what he, what he says, he says that the, the temple will be rebuilt and the uh, exiles can begin to be returned. This is a decree from Cyrus. So that is all what's behind Daniel saying, I got a scroll of Jeremiah. <laughs> and Jeremiah said all this stuff was going to happen. And that the captivity is going to last 70 years. And this is why the 70 years gets re is really important to Daniel at this point that he writes chapter 9. Because how, how long has this captivity been going on? at this point. Well, remember, we've got this, you know, we've got this time frame. This is happening in the first year of Darius, which is like the second year of the reign of Cyrus. Cyrus has given Darius a portion of the empire to run for him, right? And this is 537 B.C. Well, when did this whole thing start? starts in like 605, right? So do the math. You're in the high 60s out of your 70 years. You only got a few years left. So Daniel's attention is arrested now. As he is advanced in age, he was a teenager when he came to this. So now he's in his 70s, at least. And he's, through reading Jeremiah, this thing is going to is going to end. And as a result of that now, Daniel 9 and verse 2, reading Jeremiah, the desolation is going to last 70 years, and we're almost there. Verse 3, So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So, with that background... The, uh, the next several verses are all about um, Daniel's, Daniel's prayer. So I just want to point out some things about the prayer, and then we really want to make sure we have time to look at God's response to the prayer. Because God's response to Daniel's prayer is to send Gabriel the angel to give him some more specific predictions about God's dealings with the nation of Israel. But let's look at Daniel's, Daniel's prayer for a bit. It's one of the great models of prayer in, in the Bible. You find Ezra and Nehemiah, after they lead God's people back from Babylonian captivity in Babylon, and they come back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And Ezra's the religious leader, and Nehemiah is the political leader. So as you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's, that's who those guys are. And you find in chapter 9, it happens, of both those books, Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9. 
you find both of those guys having these prayers before the Lord. And as you read their prayers, they're very much like Daniel's prayer. So Daniel's prayer, this, this model prayer, uh, apparently was a pattern for those guys as, as well. And it's not due to the prayer being particularly eloquent. It's not particularly lengthy. But it is filled with, as we will see, Daniel's faith in believing absolutely the promises of God and expressing that belief about who God is and what God has done and will do in his, his prayer. Now, he does not start this prayer <laughs> as you start your prayers and I start my prayers with all the stuff we need. This is one of the reasons it's a model prayer. He starts with God. And, and proper prayer always starts with God. So notice, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, notice a bunch of stuff here. Starts with God, then's confessing. Notice the we even Daniel, and even, but as, as you have read about Daniel, you haven't read a single thing this guy's ever done wrong, have you? But he's a sinner like everybody else, and he acknowledges that. So he includes himself in all these failings, and he talks about our princes and our leaders not following what the prophets had warned. Well, what's he talking about there? I was reading Jeremiah, and here's Jehoiakim burning the scroll. He's being warned, but he doesn't like the warning. And so you have sent the prophets, and yet we have not obeyed your commands, and our leaders have not heeded the warnings that you have sent over and over again by your prophets. Lord, verse 7, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Our Lord, we and our kings and princes and fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law, turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Now, let me stop there. The curses that were, that were warned about in the law of Moses. Where is that? Deuteronomy, if you just want to jot down Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy 28, God says through Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, if you keep my laws, I will bless you. If you do not, I will curse you. And the cursing will include you being removed from the land that I'm giving you. And sure enough, that's what, that's what happens here. They're removed from the land, and that's what Daniel is, is referring to. Verse 12, you fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster under the whole heaven. Nothing has ever been done like what has been done to 
Jerusalem. Now, you know, nothing has been has done, and, and that's, I mean, he's, that's quite a statement. But historically, uh, it's, it's actually an accurate statement as, as well. Because um, Jerusalem was sieged by the Babylonians beginning in 605 B.C., but it was besieged for 30 months, two and a half years. And during those two and a half years, it brought starvation, even cannibalism, and total destruction. No other nation that we know of has experienced um, that kind of catastrophe like God heaped upon Jerusalem. So when, uh, when God, uh, God also in one of his other prophets, Habakkuk, you read the just three chapters worth, three chapters of Habakkuk. God says through Habakkuk, I'm going to judge Jerusalem. I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. And Habakkuk is, if you read those three chapters, he's like, God, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't use the Babylonians. Do you remember who these guys are? And, and in Habakkuk actually describes the Babylonians to, <laughs> to God and how fierce they are and how horrible they are and how, how horrible they've been to his people. But then God says in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, but I'm going to judge the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk's like, okay, all right, we're good. You can use them as long as you make sure you, you judge these guys because they're, they're vile. But when he says here in verse 12 that you have brought this great disaster and under in all the world, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. He's not just blowing smoke. Verse 13, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have sought, not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now notice, he starts with God. He praises the character of God. Confession, including himself, very forthright confession. And in all of this, and as bad as it is, and as bad as it's been, God does what's right. None of this is God's fault says Daniel. Now again, it's a model prayer. It's a model prayer for you too, for me. Because the, the bad stuff that happens to us in our lives is not God's fault. Now, it may not be a one-to-one, you sinned, therefore this is happening to you. Bad stuff happens just because we live in a fallen world. But that's the point. We live in a fallen world, and the reason we live in a fallen world is because we're all sinful. So even if it's not, I sinned, therefore this happened to me, this happened to me because we all have sinned. That's a fact. And so it is always, it always comes back to then, to us and not to, and not to God. And when he says in verse you know, 13, we haven't, through all of this, we haven't turned from our sins, end of verse four, uh, 13, and given attention to your truth. Um. Did you all know that even after Cyrus decrees, you all can start heading back (laughs) and the 70 years is coming to a close? Did you know that most of them didn't go back? They didn't go back to Jerusalem. Um, About 50,000 went back under a guy named Zerubbabel to lead them back and to begin the reconstruction of the temple according to 
Ezra chapters 1 and 2. But the vast majority stayed, stayed behind. And uh, they, they, the, those who stayed behind are people who, who ridiculed the ministry of Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet who was prophesying. His ministry was taking place during the exile. They ridiculed him. And then when the time came that they could go back, they didn't, they didn't go back. Psalm number 137. Psalm 137. Verse 4. Well, just to set it in context, this is written while in Babylon. Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. Okay. And then part of what they say, verse 4, is how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. You all know what that's a description of? May I die. <laughs> if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy... So that's, what, that's what's being said while we are in captivity at certain points by certain people. But the vast majority, when given the opportunity to regard Jerusalem and go back to Jerusalem, don't actually end up, end up doing that. So when Daniel says, we have not repented and trusted in your word in verse 12 and 13, that's exactly the case. Verse 16 of Daniel 9, his prayer. Verse 15, Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Now, verse 16 is the first time in this whole prayer that Daniel asked for something. He's been going through this whole litany of this is you, God, and this is how righteous you are. And this is the covenant that you made with your people. And we have sinned against that. And here's how we have sinned against that. And after he is done praising God and confessing sin, then he finally gets to, so here's what I'm asking. <laughs> and in verse 16, he says, In keeping with your right, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object, object of scorn to all those around us. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. So now he's asking, Lord, do this. Restore Jerusalem. Restore us to Jerusalem. We don't deserve it. <laughs> We've done all this stuff, but we're asking. Now, this is a good pattern prayer. And in fact... There's a really good pattern prayer in your New Testament given by someone named Jesus. <laughs> Often called the Lord's Prayer, better called the Disciples' Prayer. You all have heard me say, it can't be the Lord's Prayer because the Lord can't pray this prayer. The Lord can't actually pray the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer <laughs> because it says, forgive us our debts. And he never sinned. That was not a prayer for him. It was a prayer for them. He's telling them, this is how you pray. But remember how you pray. Who do you start with? God, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then after he's done that, give us this day, request our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. So when we pray, remember that. It's God first. It's his character. It's who he is. It's what matters to him. And then and we confess and we bring our requests to him. And that's exactly the kind of pattern you have with, with Daniel here. So Daniel lays out this prayer. A prayer about Jerusalem. Just remember that. This is a prayer about Jerusalem and about Israel. It's not about you, we Gentiles. It's not about the church. It's about Jerusalem and Israel. And that will become important in just, uh, just a bit. So he lays out this prayer, and then God answers his prayer. And he answers his prayer in the form of an angel. <laughs> None other than Gabriel. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that is Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision. Now, when did he, when did he do that? That was chapter 8. Remember uh, last week, Gabriel shows up, and Gabriel explains to uh, Abraham, my goodness, Daniel, he explains to Daniel the meaning of the, the ram and the goat, and he says this all pertains to the time of the end, and the little horn that comes out is the, the Antichrist. This is all Gabriel explaining this. So, you know, I had seen, heard from Gabriel before. I'm hearing from now this Gabriel again in the form of, of a man. He says in verse 21, The man I had seen in the earlier vision, he came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Well, all right. Well, the time of the evening sacrifice um, is between 3 and 6 in the afternoon. And uh, Gabriel comes in swift flight. Now, like this is really swift flight, okay? Here's why. Because look at verse, I think it's verse 23. Yeah, here's what Gabriel says to him. Verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you. Now, just think about the mechanics of this. As soon as you began to pray, God answers, and I'm your answer. So God says, Gabriel, go talk to that guy. Now, where's God and where's Gabriel when Daniel starts praying? Well, there's a thing in the Bible called the third heaven. You guys ever heard of that? It's described by Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I knew a man, as you read further, he's talking about himself, who was caught up into the third heaven, in the very presence of God. He calls it the third heaven. Now, there are three heavens. Well, here's, here's the way heaven is used. The, the word heaven is used in the Bible, three ways. One is just our atmosphere. It's the first heaven. Second heaven is the planets. And then the third heaven is the abode of God. So, you know, just think about the planets. I mean, so the third heaven is like somewhere beyond the planets. And the planets have galaxies that are billions and billions of miles away. And then you've got, you know, billions of galaxies within galaxies. And then there's the third heaven. And God says, as soon as you began to pray, 
or Gabriel says, as soon as you began to pray, I was told to get here. And here I am. <laughs> so when he says swift flight, this is mock whatever, you know, warp speed. He's it. We're here, right? And I'm here as the answer to, to your prayer. And so Gabriel comes, you know, in the, the late afternoon, and he, and he comes to Daniel, and here's, uh, here's what he says. Verse uh, 20, um, 21, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening, uh, the evening sacrifice. Now, this is Daniel thinking about the evening sacrifice. Now, where is Daniel? He's in Babylon. Daniel's not offering sacrifice. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not at the temple. But this is the way this guy thinks. He thinks according to God's calendar. He thinks according to the temple. He thinks according to Jerusalem. He thinks according to the, uh, the sacrifice. All the sacrifices had ended 50 years earlier when uh, Nebuchadnezzar finally, he had besieged the city. Um, then he got busy doing other things. He came back to it because the Jews continued to rebel. And he finally de- destroyed Jerusalem utterly. And yet, as far as Daniel's concerned, this is what is important. And that's why, remember when Daniel prayed in defiance of the king's order, he looked toward, he opened the window and he looked toward where? He looked toward Jerusalem, okay? All right. So here's what Gabriel says to him. Verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, the, the when you're highly esteemed, I just want to beat that for one second. You know, it's not, you know, God's, real, God's impressed with you, Daniel. God's not impressed with, with people. So when it says you're highly esteemed, we've seen Daniel. We've seen Daniel's character. What, what makes Daniel uh, esteemed before God is that Daniel believes God. So it's, you know, Daniel's, Daniel's a, got terrific abilities and all of that. But remember, in all of it, Daniel always acknowledges God as the one who gave it. And so he's highly esteemed because he believes God and he's using what God has given him for the purposes for which God has has given it. And so what does Gabriel say? Verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to do six things. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. So 77s are, now I'm going to, Gabriel, I'm going to tell you, yes, there's, there's 70 years, Jeremiah, of captivity, and now there are 70 periods of seven for the entire rest of the history of your people in the holy city. That's what Gabriel's saying. So we need to decide, determine, how long is this? When's it start? When's it end? What happens? So let's do that. <laughs> so how long is it? Well, the NIV says 77s. If you've got a King James, anybody got a King James? It says 70 weeks, right? 70 weeks. Now, it says 70 weeks, so when you read weeks... You know, we think, we, we say a week, we mean seven days. But the Hebrew literally says just 70 periods of seven 
somethings. It doesn't tell you what the somethings are. A week for us is a period of seven days. But it's, it's actually a period of sevens, which could be days or it could be years. And in the context, it is most definitely years. Now, how do we, how do we know this? Well, as we're going to see before we leave today, Revelation chapter, the last book of your Bible, Revelation 11, 12, and 13, all speak of one of these periods of 77s, the last period of seven, called the seven-year, what do we call it? The seven-year tribulation. It's a period of seven years. It's got two halves to it, Revelation 11, 12, and 13. 42 months and 42 months, 1,260 days and 1,260 days, three and a half years and three and a half years. So it's a period of, the last seven is a period of seven years. And so 70 of these periods of seven years are decreed. So 70 times seven years, this is 490 years, okay? So Daniel, or excuse me, Gabriel says, 490 years are decreed for your people and your holy city to do these, to do these six things. So 490 years. And then, when does it start and when does it end? Well, he, he says, this is when it's going to start. He goes on to say, verse 25, From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So seven periods of seven years is 49 years. And, uh, and 62 sevens, 62 and sevens and seven sevens, 483 of the 490 years are accounted for. Okay? But it starts with the issuing of the decree. So when did the official permission was it finally given to rebuild and fortify Jerusalem? Because notice what verse 25 says. It says it will be built, rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of, of trouble. And so the entire the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and refortified. Cyrus gave a decree in 537 that the temple could be rebuilt. But it wasn't until the year, so here's your commencing year, the beginning year, 445 B.C., that the Persian king Artaxerxes issued a decree for Jerusalem, the, the entire city, to be rebuilt and refortified, 445 B.C. So you've got, how long is it? It's 490 years. How many years before the anointed one? is cut off, um, verse uh, 25, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be these uh, 483 years. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And when it says cut off, what, what does that mean? He'll be, he'll be killed. So it's a prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. The anointed one is the Messiah. That's literally the Hebrew word, the Mashiach. The anointed one will come, the, the Messiah. When he comes, he will be at the end of, it says at the end of the 62, the 62 are preceded by the seven, so at the end of the 483 years, he'll be killed. 
So 445 B.C. plus 483 years. And you come to about 37 B.C. if you use our calendar. But if you use the calendar that the Jews use, if you use the calendar that the book of Revelation uses, that a month is, um, is 30 days. And that um, three and a half years is 42 months or 1260 days. And if you use that, guess what year you come out to? That the Messiah is cut off, killed. 33 AD. So there's going to be 483 years that begin with the decree of Artaxerxes, 445 BC, to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the anointed one, is killed, is, is cut off. And yet you've still got seven years. Remember there's four, 490. That's 483. So you've got another seven years. Well, what about that? Middle of verse 26. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come like a flood. Now, the people of the ruler who will come. Um, the ruler who will come, we've now transitioned to from the Messiah who will be cut off to another ruler who will come who's already been mentioned in chapter 8, the little horn, the Antichrist. And it says the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So who are these, who are these people? And this gives you at least a, a small clue as to who the Antichrist is, where he comes from. Because they are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And in fact, they did that in 70 A.D., after Jesus is killed, after Jesus is resurrected, after he ascends back to the Father, um, the Roman uh, 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 general Titus destroys the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. The temple to this day has never been rebuilt. And who were those people? The Romans. And the Romans are the people of the ruler who will come. So when people say Obama is the Antichrist, they haven't read Daniel 9, okay? I mean, that's just, you know, Republicans mad, saying stupid stuff, okay? So just don't say that kind of stuff around me. Read Daniel 9, then we can talk, okay? No, really, I mean, we just get too wigged out about some of this stuff. But I've heard people say that. You know, I think Obama's the Antichrist. Really? He's from the south side of Chicago. I just don't find that description in Scripture anywhere. Okay? I don't think he's your guy. I don't know who your guy is, but he ain't it. Okay? So, the Roman Empire, right? Hasn't Daniel already said the Roman Empire is going to be rebuilt? There's going to be this ten-nation confederation that's going to come to the end, and out of that... There are these ten horns, and there's going to be this little horn that comes out that will be the Antichrist, and will rule that ten days. It will be a revival of the Roman Empire. That's what we saw back in chapter 8. And so the people of the prince who will come are the Romans 
So this guy's going to be a European, okay? Not a guy from the south side of Chicago. Who he's going to be, I don't know. When that's going to be, I don't know. But when he comes to power, this is what he does. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Here's what he will do, verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Remember, we got one period of seven years still hanging out there. Well, this is what he's going to do. He's going to make a, an agreement, a pact, a covenant with God's chosen people for a period of seven years. And in the middle of the seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a, on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that's decreed is poured out on him. All right. So you've got 490 years, 483 have been fulfilled, and they ended when the Messiah was killed. 33 AD. You've got one period of seven years. Verse 27 speaks of that, in which the Antichrist will make a covenant, a pact with Israel for seven years. But in the middle of it, he'll break it. And that's why Revelation 11, 12, and 13 speak of that seven-year period in two halves. Because there'll be one half that's relatively tranquil. They've made an agreement. We've got the temple. We can do our religious observances. We can offer sacrifices. And then in the middle of that, he will break it, and he will break it in the most blasphemous way. He will commit an abomination on the wing, on a wing of the temple, it says. Now, we've already been given a foretaste of this when, I mentioned him last week, Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys remember that? And remember the Maccabees fought against him to restore the temple that he desecrated by offering a pig on the altar? He not only did that, but the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the true and living God, was also dedicated to the pagan god Zeus. This is Antiochus. And yet there is this one who will come, of which Antiochus was just a type, a foreshadowing, who will commit an abominable desolation, abomination that causes desolation. And then what happens at the end of that seven-year period? He has tormented God's people. He has killed them. And God has two witnesses, book of Revelation, that are preaching truth during this seven-year period. They are killed. Their bodies are seen in the streets by the whole world, the Bible says. You know, people used to read that and go, how does the whole world see your bodies? Well, that was before satellite, right? Now we know. The whole world really can see. And the whole world really will see these two bodies of these two witnesses who had been preaching in the streets, dead. And at the end of the seven years where he has worn out God's people and, and inflicted great pain upon them, God, the second coming will happen. Jesus returns. And then he will have, last line of verse 27, the end that it that is decreed will be poured out on him.
And that is the battle of what? Battle of Armageddon. That is a real place. Har-Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. You can actually go there. There it is. And that's where Jesus returns, and that's where the final battle occurs. And then Jesus brings in the uh, millennial kingdom. That's when the thousand-year kingdom begins. And that is how all six of these things mentioned way back in verse, verse 24 happen in this 490-year period, including, notice the sixth one, the last one. Verse 24, to anoint the most holy. That will be a restoration of the, the most holy. Anybody remember what that is, the most holy? Remember the holy of holies in the temple, which has now been desecrated by the Antichrist. But it will be restored by Jesus. And it will be rededicated. So that's the, the most holy place in the temple, the holy of holies. And that will be the final of those six things. And then the end of the 490 years, end of the seven-year tribulation, beginning of Jesus' reign in the millennial kingdom. Now, we got to quit two minutes ago. But Daniel is given all that by Gabriel. And all that stuff's going to happen. Now, Daniel doesn't know who Artaxerxes is. This guy will come, you know, uh, later, 100 years later, nearly. So Daniel doesn't know who he is. You know, he doesn't know who Antiochus is that we met back in chapter 8. He doesn't know the names. But he, what he does know is that God is in control, and that's the whole point of Daniel being given this. Now, I just bring that up for this reason. God gives us these kinds of predictions, and then we can look at what God predicted after his fulfillment, and we go, wow. But prior to it, all we know is that God has got this in control. He knows exactly how this is going to happen. I don't know the names. I don't know all of the particular circumstances. And God doesn't care that you know all the names and all the particular circumstances, right? Now, why do, why do I beat on that? Here's why. You should not spend a lot of money and a lot of time and read a lot of books by the people who try to spend a lot of money and a lot of time writing a lot of books about who the names are and who's going to be the guy and all of that stuff. Because that's not what God has given us. What God has given us is a prediction that I'm in control of it I know exactly how it's going to happen. And the names are going to be attached to these situations in my, in my timing. And that's what Daniel got. And it was a gift from God through the angel Gabriel in order to comfort him in the midst of this captivity. And particularly at the end of the captivity, where they are, to let him know we are right on schedule. This is going to happen exactly as I, God, have said. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to examine the words of your servant Daniel and what he has told us about your control of history and your care of your people in particular. And Lord, we look back now on what you have done and you have fulfilled it precisely as you have uh, predicted it through the, the mouths of your, your prophets. And so there is still seven years to be done, seven years in particular, in which you will make an, uh, an end of the uh, desolation caused by the, the, the blasphemy of the Antichrist. This is all yet future. We don't know when it commences. We don't know who brings it in. 
We don't need to know. What we need to know, Lord God, is that everything is moving apace. On this day, April 17, 2013, everything is moving apace exactly to the second according to your calendar. Help us to remember that this week. Help us to be comforted by it and bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.